Now it's my privilege to introduce our speaker for the occasion. Um, Alan Runyon uh, is probably known to many of you because Alan was the lead attorney for the diocese, the Anglican Diocese of South Carolina and its litigation, recent litigation with the Episcopal Church. And he was really the architect of our victory and we are so grateful for him and for all that he did on behalf of the diocese. Um, really, we um, had a great victory in the Supreme Court, we think, and a lot of that is due to his legal skill. But in addition to his brilliance as an attorney, Alan is also a theologian. Uh, he studied at Oxford. As a matter of fact, he studied for a time under Dr. McGrath, so he knows Alistair McGrath personally. And in addition to that, uh, he is a child of the parsonage. Um, his father was, and mother were missionaries in Africa. That's where he was born. So he was born on the mission field. Uh, he has been a faithful Christian over the years. Uh, he was in my parish in Beaufort for a number of years, and uh, we are privileged to be able to have him come up and tell his story. It is an extraordinary story. And every time I've heard it, and I've heard it more than once, I am richly blessed by it. And I trust that you're going to be richly blessed by it as well. So without further ado, if you'd be so kind as to welcome Alan Runyon. Thank you, brother. First thing, is the technology working? Can you hear me okay? I, I'm always accused by, by judges and juries of speaking too softly, so uh, I do carry a big stick though. <laughs> Pray with me if you would. Most Holy Father, open our minds, open our hearts to you. Speak through me, help me to get out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2 Corinthians, one of the things Paul is doing in chapter 5 is he's trying to explain to the Corinthians the difference between what it's like to be in heaven and on earth. And he does it in, in words that give people, in some sense, a longing for being in heaven and not being on earth. And in verses 5 and 6, he kind of sums it up about the concept of when we're not with the Lord, we're here. And here's what he says in verse 5 and 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, that is here, we are away from the Lord. And then he says this, for we walk by faith, not by sight. I want to spend a little bit of time speaking to you about that in the context of my life. But first of all, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a young man who was walking on a path in Africa. And let's just call this young man Alan. And Alan is walking on this path, and he hears this rustling in the bush over here. And he turns around, and lo and behold, here comes a female lion in full pursuit. So Alan takes off as fast as he can. And he's running out of room because he comes to an edge, edge of a cliff. And he's thinking, lion, cliff, lion, cliff. He looks down there, and there's a branch. So what does he do? He jumps. It's about three feet and he grabs a branch. And he's dangling there from the branch and he can hear that kind of low growl up there and see a little bit of the lion's head and then and it kind of gets quiet. Lion goes away. And then all of a sudden he thinks, uh-oh, I got a problem here. <laughs> I've got a branch at a thousand feet below me. I can't reach the top. What am I gonna do? So he does what the only thing he probably could do, and he yells out, 
Is anybody up there? And a voice comes back from who knows where. Yes, I'm here. And he says, who's that? The voice says, it's the Lord. He says, Lord, help me. And the Lord says, do you trust me? And he says, I trust you completely, Lord. Good. Let go of the branch. Silence. Is anybody else up there? <laughs> now, that's obviously fictional, but it, it teaches us a real truth. There's a difference between intellectual faith and real faith. And I want to try to talk about that a little bit today. You know, you don't have to live long in this world to know you live in a world of doubt, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Pick any thesaurus you want, and you'll find more synonyms for doubt than you will for faith. And in fact, words typically associated with faith are themselves imbued in terms of doubt. Consider the words that Reagan said to Gorbachev when he was talking to Gorbachev about the nuclear test ban treaty. Trust, but verify. Or we can blame Thomas. I'm not going to pick on Thomas. Just pick ourselves. Somebody tells us something fanciful and we say, I'll believe it when I see it. Or better yet, the first question in the Bible, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, Doubt is not necessarily unbelief. It's a state of being between belief and unbelief. It's a suspension between faith and unbelief. So it's neither one nor the other. It's double-mindedness. It's a foot in both camps, and we can go on and on about examples of what doubt is. But doubt for a Christian is the devil's delight. And why is that? Because Satan wants us concerned not about what we should be doing, which is God's concern, but about what will happen to us if we do it. Doubt for Satan and for us breeds uncertainty. Uncertainty breeds fear, and fear paralyzes. One of my famous quotes uh, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh Reformed theologian, in response to this is, faith is the refusal to panic. In the few minutes that I have, I want to share with you three vignettes from my Christian walk. The first one is saving faith. That is how I became a Christian. The second one is a period I would call my intellectual faith moment in which is buried the concept of the golden fleece, or the fleece that was laid out by Gideon. And the third one is a period of faith that I will call the reluctant Episcopalian. Now, each one of these is imbued with doubt of various kinds. The first one is doubt about my salvation, which is critical. The second one is doubt about my call or in this case, calls. And the third thing I want to say about it is, what do you do about that? 
What do you do about doubt? Because we all have it. So I'll start off with telling you what Jeff has already told you. I'm the youngest son of Southern Baptist missionaries. They were called to Nigeria and went to Nigeria in 1946 and stayed there until 1986. And I was born in Nigeria and lived there from 1951 to 1961. And during that period of time, mission life was kind of an isolated life for a young kid growing up. You didn't have a neighborhood. You just didn't have friends. In fact, I made up a friend, called this friend's name Kephas. So Kephas was my buddy, and he, he palled around with me when we walked around the rocks and what have you. So it was an isolated life. And to make it even worse, uh, when I became of school age, I went to a boarding school 178 miles away. So from the ages of 7 to 10, I was even more isolated from my parents because you couldn't just go home on the weekends. I can recall uh, waking up to the sound of the muezzin, as he called the adhan, or the call to prayer at 5 a.m. in the morning. I can recall tropical fruit. I can recall literally living in a guava tree, eating the guavas while they were still green because I just loved them that way. And everybody else got frustrated because they never got ripe. Um, guavas, mango, breadfruit. Um, I can recall sneaking out to go eat with my African friends, and that was an experience because they had this dish called gari, which is delightful. It sounds awful, but it is ground cassava that is fermented and served warm. You eat it with your fingers, you dip the gari, and then you dip the sauce, which they call sweet. Brace yourself. It will light you up. The very first time I had sweet sauce, I could hardly swallow for two days. I can recall having to be aware of my surroundings, cobras, um, mambas, driver's ants that will eat anything in its path, including chickens and small children, not being able to walk barefoot because of hookworm, not being able to drink unboiled water because of any number of parasites. Um, and not being allowed to swim in rivers and streams. And you can imagine the river, you don't want to go near the streams for parasitic reasons. The river, you know, crocodiles and whatnot. So, so you had to be constantly aware. But I'll tell you, in, in terms of what I want to say today, what I call the, recall the most is my spiritual immersion. Folks, I have heard a lot of sermons. I've heard sermons in Hausa. I've heard sermons in Yoruba. I've heard sermons in Igbo, I've heard sermons in English, and in later life I heard sermons in French. I've heard thousands of ser sermons. So not unusual, I would say, that when I was a tow-haired little boy of five years old, standing on a sand pile in the back of a yard where my father was building a house in Kawo, which was a suburb of Kaduna in northern Nigeria, from the top of the sand pile, I announced to my father and to the world that I was a sinner. And my father said he didn't know if I was bragging or convicted. <laughs> but he did what any good Baptist missionary would do, is he counseled his son, believing that he understood what that meant. And the next year, when we came home on furlough, I made a public profession of faith, which we do in the Baptist church, and I was baptized. And that began my um, life as a Christian. But that was step one. So fast forward to 1961, we come home from Africa. Anybody here 
old enough to remember the 60s? We got a few. <laughs> we got a few. So I come home in 1961 from this shepherded life as, a, as an MK, doing all the things that you can imagine that were shepherded. Of course, I didn't know the difference. But I come back to the United States and, whoa, 1961, barely a year later, the Cuban Missile Crisis, DEFCON 2. I didn't know if we'd make it through the weekend, and I didn't even know what that meant. And I was an 11-year-old. Fast forward a year later, 12, year, 12 years old, November 22, 1963, John F. Kennedy assassinated. That weekend on Sunday, Lee Harvey Oswald killed. Fast forward a couple of years to 1968, the Vietnam War, 16-year-old, highest Vietnam troop levels everywhere um, during that time. In fact, every evening on Walter Cronkite, the evening news, there'd be the body count. Many people died today. And I will never forget in the spring of 19, in February of 1968, on the seven o'clock news of Walter Cronkite, General Lowe of the South Vietnamese Army hauls out a Viet Cong, pulls him up to the side. This is live, this is, this is a replay, but it's, it's going out at seven o'clock at night. Pulls out his, his pistol and blows his brains out right there in front of everybody. 1968, 1968. Martin Luther King is shot. 1968, Robert F. Kennedy is shot. So you've got this young boy who's growing into a man who comes to America from a period of certainty, a period of calm, a period of structure. And all of a sudden, there's temporal uncertainty. I mean, everywhere. Those of you who lived it know it. And those of you may have had similar experiences but it was a shocking time in America. And so what happened, the spiritual, the, excuse me, the temporal uncertainty turned into spiritual uncertainty. And the question came to me, am I really a Christian? I mean, it was, I was just five years old. Do I really know what I claim to believe? And I, I struggled with that for a number of years and then went to a revival. You know, Baptist churches have revivals. So, and the person speaking there was a gentleman, a preacher by the name of Vance Havner. Vance Havner was a country boy, grew up in North Carolina, uneducated, started preaching when he was um, very young to the point that he had to have a stool to stand on in order to be able to preach. He turned out at one point in time to be the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Charleston in the 30s. Vance Havner was known for his witticisms. And just to share a couple with you, too many churches start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 o'clock dull. <laughs> Not this church, by the way. Some fights are lost even though we win. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but it just isn't worth it. <laughs> or if you see a Bible that's falling apart, it probably belongs to someone who isn't. And I began to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ is not inherited. It's not a function of church membership. It's not a function of how many sermons you have heard. Now, all those things help. It helped that I had a Christian family. It helped that I had attended church and it helped that I had heard a lot of sermons. 
but it's personal and it's transformative. And that's the only way it happens. Vance Habner also said, if you, have what you've all, if, if you are what you've always been, you're not a Christian. A Christian is a new creation. Or to some, Christianity is an argument. To many, it's a performance. To a few, it's an experience. So in his little sermon that I don't remember anything about except this one rule, he cut to the chase. If you're having doubt, examine your heart and ask God to remove doubt whose origin is your unbelief. So I had to confront the reality of the fact that my profession of faith at five, while a step in the right direction, was a declaration of my Savior, but not my Lord. And that's what happened at 16, because at 16, I went into the bathroom in our small house in, in the upper part of South Carolina and prayed a pretty simple prayer that I really don't remember the substance of, but it went something like this. I think I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian. I may not be, but I certainly want to be. I believe that Jesus died. I believe that he was resurrected, and I believe he died for me. But if I'm a Christian and I have doubts, get rid of the doubts. If I'm not, I want to be. And I got up, and it was gone. Is gone. Now that doesn't mean that I've not had doubts since then, but it means that without a shadow of a doubt, I know where I will be when I die. I know with whom I will be when I die. So let's fast forward 20 years, mid-1980s, 35-year-old attorney, successful partner in one of Columbia's largest law firms, deacon in the First Baptist Church, singing in the choir, teaching classes to college students, and I get a phone call from a lawyer in the, in the low state. And he says, uh, hey, let's start a firm. Really, what's that about? Well, just be the two of us. Uh, you're going to have to leave where you are. You're going to come down here and hang out a shingle in Hampton, South Carolina, and you know, we'll have a great time. Now, I'm third in command in the litigation group in this law firm. I've got a son at Heathwood Hall. I've got another that's six months old. And I'm being asked to do what? So I hesitated. I thought about it. Finally, he gave me an ultimatum. He said, look, I've got to have an answer. So I turned to God and I said, look, I've got to have an answer. And I did it <laughs> by thinking about Gideon. We don't have time to go into Gideon's story, but... Gideon is a story of God's faithfulness for one of his doubting children. It comes across to most people as a Sunday school lesson about the faith of Gideon. And Gideon does make it in Hebrews 11. He is there as one of the faithful. But this was a story about God's grace. And that's what it was going to be with me. So I gave God a deadline. On Monday, August the 30, 1987, in my living room, and I can remember it today, I said, you know what, <clears throat> I don't know what to do about this stuff. I don't know whether to leave or not. But I'll tell you what, um, I haven't heard from my brother in a long time, and we're not in a particularly good relationship. You have him send me, call me. You have him call me on Wednesday, and I'll know I'm supposed to do this. <laughs> Ooh, he's, he's got... 
And you know what? I, I halfway believed. I halfway believed it just didn't matter. I just, I just didn't have an answer, and I needed an answer. Um, so Wednesday comes, nothing, quiet. I get depressed. I go to my wife, and I say, she said, what's your problem? He's answered you. You're not supposed to go. But in here, I knew different, which tells you something, which taught me something. Friday afternoon, I come home from work. Mail is on the counter. And this is on the counter, too. This letter from my brother, which has meaningless stuff inside, but it's dated September 1, 1987. That was Tuesday. That was Tuesday. This had been routed through the upstate. It didn't go straight to Columbia. It went to Greenville first, and then it came. <laughs> Two things happened as a result of that. Number one, I learned that you listen to the Holy Spirit. I knew the answer to that. I also learned that God is merciful. He wants you to do what he wants you to do, and he will do his best to guide you to do that. And the third thing I learned is you don't give God an ultimatum without obeying it. Boom, without obeying it. So I left. I pulled out of that law firm. I went down to the lower part of the state. I had no idea what I was doing or why I was doing it. But you know what? I wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't have met the second call that I had if I hadn't done that. So fast forward again, 13 years. I'm now tired of Hampton. I'm moving to Beaufort. I go to Beaufort. I join the Baptist Church, of course. I'm a Baptist. And um, it's not really going well. It's kind of a struggle. Uh, it's kind of like, eh, just doesn't feel right. And my wife kept telling me, you know, there's a church right next door. It's supposedly got a good rector. And uh, I've heard he preaches the gospel. I know he's a great pre preacher. And I said, yeah, honey, it's Episcopal. Really? <laughs> they wear robes. They speak liter from literature. It's not it's a book. It's not even the Bible. <laughs> and she kept on, and she kept on. And I said, okay, fine. I'm going to go to Sunday school, and I'll go listen to it. So 2005, I go to hear the rector and others um, teach Sunday school. And I said, you know, I've heard this before. This is the gospel. He's got a collar on, and he wears robes on Sunday, but this is the gospel. But I still fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it, and kept going. And one day in November 2006, when there was an announcement about a new mission directive, I think it's being the Church of Acts or, or something, I don't remember the exact details, I went to Sunday school and wham. Uh, have no idea what was said, but I know I was hit. Went to church, wham, happened again. Walked out of church, and I was about four or five steps from the exit of the walkway at Parishers St. Helena. And those of you who have been there know that over to the left, when you're walking out, are the graves of the Englishmen. Who, who, and I, was, I could see them. And into my head came this statement. What are you running from? You belong here. 
got in the car, told Beth somebody spoke to me, it wasn't Jeff Miller, went home and on Monday we went to see him and we joined the church. In effect, God was saying, stop this silliness. You know better. You know I've been speaking to you. Act on it. Act on the faith that you claim to have. Now, intellectually, Christians never doubt that God can do something, but we often doubt that he will. And there's only one way that I've ever found to deal with that doubt and the fears that it causes, and that is to act on the faith that you have. That is a momentous statement. You need to think about it. It's one of the most difficult things that I have found for Christians to learn, including myself. Folks, faith without action is not faith. Faith without action is not faith. And it's not the quantity of faith. It's the quality of your faith. You don't have to have a lot, but what you have has to be real. If you look at Hebrews 11, and I challenge you to read that when you have an opportunity, there's a great litany of the, of the heroes of faith who have done things without knowing where they're going or what they're going to do. Abel offered. Noah constructed an ark. He, had no, he was told it was going to rain, but he didn't have any proof of that. Abram went. Abraham offered Isaac. Moses left Egypt, kept the Passover, passed through the Red Sea. If you look through this list, then the author of Hebrews comes to this point, and he says, he, he, he lays out in the text what happened when they acted. Well, faith conquered kingdoms, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Folks, you look in the dictionary, faith is a noun. But I'm telling you that, that it really is a verb. It really is a verb to be alive. Jesus made it really, really clear on a number of occasions that faith causes things to happen. Very quickly, um, when Jesus was coming back down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes back down and there's a crowd milling around because the scribes are questioning the disciples who had tried to heal this boy who was probably an epileptic and they couldn't do anything. And so if you look at what, what is said in, in Matthew about this event, in chapter 17, Jesus is kind of frustrated. The disciples ask why they couldn't do it. And he says, because you have so little faith. And then he says, for truly I say to you, if you have the faith like a grain of mustard seed, that's, a, that's the, pin, the head of a pin, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Jesus didn't say, it may move. And nothing will be impossible for you. He didn't say, well, some things will be possible. Uh, if you look at that same story through the lens of Mark, you find that Jesus uh, is speaking to the Father. And the Father brings the boy to him, and he's imploring Jesus. And the Father says this, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, I just love this, this is, this is um, we all need to kind of let this sink in from time to time. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. 
Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. The Greek word there is the present imperative. Translates to be constantly helping my unbelief, which is what all of us as Christians say all the time when we have to confront our doubts. Help us with our unbelief. Faith is acting on what we believe intellectually to be true. Real faith is when Alan lets go of the branch. We all have our branches that are hindering us. When you let go of what you can see and by faith grasp what you cannot, friends, you have grasped the hand of God. Now you may say, oh, I just don't have the strength to do that. I just, yeah, well, that's probably true. You may not have the strength to do that. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and it's one of the great paradoxes of Christian faith, we cannot gain what God has for us without having the strength enough to be weak. That is an absolute truth. In weakness, we are strong. So I want to say in conclusion, um, just a few words from that great song of Fanny Crosby's that she wrote in 1873, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. And I'll leave you with a question. What's your story? Do you have one? Is your doubt holding you back from a story? You know, when you die, you're not dead. Death is a doorway. Just look at the story of the, the transfiguration. God himself buried Moses on Mount Nebo. Guess what? He's not dead. He was right there. The same is true for all of you. You're going to live forever. Ask yourself where. Ask yourself that question. And if you have doubts about it, you don't have to have doubts about that. There's this, there's this wonderful missionary hymn called We Have a Story to Tell the Nations. And I got to tell you, it is the greatest story ever told. I can share it. Jeff can share it. Andrew can share it. All, anybody in here who's a Christian can share it if you have any doubts. God became a man. Because that was the only way to rid us of an impossible bar barrier to our relationship with God, and that is our, our sin. That was the only way. You can't do it, no matter how hard you try. But Emmanuel, Jesus, God with us, has already done it. All you have to do is believe it. And it will transform you forever, I promise you. So, let go of your doubt and grasp the hand of God. Let's pray. Most Holy Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you, for us to renew our image that is so defaced through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that that is not something we have to doubt. We thank you that you're there to give us certainty, 
And for any of those who may have concerns about whether that really is something that's happened to them, give them the courage to ask questions, to reach out to their fellow Christians. Encourage them and strengthen them and bring them to you in Jesus' name. Well, amongst other things, Alan, you are living proof that Baptists make the best Anglicans. So it's just the way it is. Uh, there's a little part of this story that you may not know. Alan was uh, ultimately confirmed uh, by Bishop Lawrence. And um, uh, even though he was at the time uh, attending the parish church of St. Helena, he was actually confirmed here at the chapel at St. Philip's. So there is a sense in which he has dual citizenship. So, Alan, thank you so much for telling your story. And it is a story that many of us um, have also experienced, but yours is unique. And we're so grateful for your willingness to come and share that with us today. And so delighted that God continues to use you in a mighty way um, wherever you go. So thank you for spreading the light of the gospel with us today. Gentlemen, we're delighted to have you with us. Um, if you are not on our mailing list, Brian McGreevy asks that you please um, come up and see me after we finish so that I can make sure you are on the mailing list so that you can get information about these sessions. Uh, the next one is going to be in November. I don't remember if I have the exact date on from me. It might be November the 8th, something like that, but you'll get information about this. And the speaker for that occasion is going to be George Green, the head of Water Mission. So uh, George, likewise, like Alan, has a marvelous story to tell. And let me just say this. Um, if you do not have that relationship with Jesus Christ that Alan talked about, uh, the clergy of St. Philip's and I are here. We would be more than delighted to just spend some time with you, to pray with you, and introduce you to Jesus Christ so that you can begin this walk of faith yourself. So um, if that's the case with you, please don't hesitate. We are here, and we would be delighted to spend some time with you. And now, may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you this day and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.